0: Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In this episode, I'll bring you up to date on important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our September-October 2017 issue. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Patients with severe mental diseases experience higher rates of cardiovascular disease and overall mortality when compared to the general population. Comorbid conditions, such as metabolic syndrome, may help explain this scenario. However, the role antipsychotic treatment plays in cardiovascular disease is largely unknown. Second-generation antipsychotics have been shown to induce greater weight gain and cause more metabolic abnormalities when compared to first-generation antipsychotics. Additionally, first- and second-generation antipsychotics differ in the severity of their metabolic side effects. To learn more about these distinctions, researchers in Argentina analyzed long-term differences in major cardiovascular events in patients with severe mental conditions who were treated with antipsychotics associated with high, intermediate, and low risk of inducing metabolic abnormalities. Results showed an almost threefold increased risk of major cardiovascular events associated with high and intermediate risk agents when compared to low risk agents. However, no differences were found between users of high and intermediate risk medications. This finding might indicate that the difference in the induction of weight gain and metabolic abnormalities readily seen between these drugs does not necessarily imply differences in long-term cardiovascular morbidity. In a final observation, the authors ultimately found no differences in all-cause mortality between the three drug classes. Lithium is an important treatment for mood disorder, but it remains unclear whether its use increases the risk of chronic kidney disease. This potential is particularly important in older patients who may be more susceptible to the condition. In this study, funded by the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, the authors examined whether lithium is associated with an increased risk of chronic kidney disease compared to valparate in older adults. This large study used province-wide administrative health data from mental health service users aged 66 and older in Ontario, Canada from 2003 to 2014. The five-year risk of having incident chronic kidney disease was compared in lithium users, valparate users, and non-users. The authors controlled for hypertension, diabetes mellitus, acute kidney injury, medications associated with lithium toxicity, and other potential confounders. Results showed that lithium was independently associated with an almost twofold increase in chronic kidney disease risk, while valproate was not. The authors conclude that potential causes for this increased risk, such as inadequate monitoring and acute and chronic lithium-level elevations, will need to be determined in future research. Intrusive thoughts are unwanted, uncontrollable thoughts or images that suddenly occur in the mind. Their content is often related to one's current concerns, which explains why intrusive thoughts in new mothers often involve harm to their child. Besides the expected warm and joyful thoughts, a new mother can be disturbed by sudden frightening thoughts. For example, is my baby still breathing, or could I accidentally drop my baby? A mother might also be disturbed by thoughts or images in which she herself actively harms her infant with a thought, for example, what if I smothered my baby with a pillow? Passive as well as active harming intrusions arise in both healthy mothers and mothers suffering from psychiatric disorders. Some women interpret these thoughts as shameful and meaningful. A mother may believe that having these thoughts implies she is a bad person or increases the likelihood of catastrophic events. Some women even become obsessed with their thoughts and the well-being of their children, leading to behavioral rituals such as compulsively checking if the baby is still breathing. Despite the high prevalence of intrusive thoughts and their possible consequences for mother and child, many medical professionals are as yet unfamiliar with this phenomenon. In this critical review, the authors offer a comprehensive review of infant-related intrusive thoughts of harm experienced by parents during the postpartum period. They discuss prevalence, assessment, differential diagnosis, etiology, consequences, and treatment. Their intent is to inform clinicians about postpartum intrusive thoughts and help guide them in their clinical practice. Results have been mixed for open-label studies exploring the effect of suicidality on antidepressant treatment in patients with psychotic depression. Some studies show poor response in suicidal patients, but others find no such association. The objectives of the present study were twofold, to examine the relationship between baseline suicidality and treatment outcome in patients with psychotic depression, and to explore whether pharmacologic treatment assignment was a factor in this relationship. The authors conducted a secondary analysis of data from the Study of the Pharmacotherapy of Psychotic Depression, or STOP-PD. This 12-week randomized controlled trial, funded by the National Institute of Mental Health, compared olanzapine plus sertraline with olanzapine plus placebo in the treatment of major depressive disorder with psychotic features in 258 patients aged 18 years and older. Participants were divided into four mutually exclusive groups based on baseline suicidality. Those who had a suicide attempt during the current episode, those with active suicidal ideation, those with passive suicidal ideation, and those with no suicidal ideation. The outcome measures of interest were change in severity of depressive symptoms over time and probability of remission over time. The authors found that patients with suicidality had less improvement in severity of depressive symptoms over the 12-week trial than those with no suicidality. Those with suicidality experienced greater improvement in severity of depression with the combination of olanzapine and sertraline compared with olanzapine and placebo, whereas participants with no suicidality did equally well in both treatment arms. There was a trend in the association between baseline suicidality and probability of remission over time, but this relationship did not reach statistical significance, possibly because of inadequate statistical power. The authors conclude that this study is valuable, as it adds to the literature in two understudied areas suicidality in psychotic depression, and baseline suicidality as a predictor of treatment outcome in major depressive disorder. No highly effective pharmacologic interventions to prevent delirium have been identified to date despite some success of non-pharmacologic interventions. Recently, researchers in Japan examined whether suvorexant, a potent and selective orexin receptor antagonist, is effective for preventing delirium. With funding support from the Japan Society for Promotion of Science, the authors conducted a randomized, placebo-controlled clinical trial in intensive care units and regular acute wards in patients aged 65 to 89 who were newly admitted to the emergency department. 72 patients were randomly assigned to receive 15 milligrams per day of suvorexant, or placebo, every night for 3 days. The primary outcome measure was incidence of delirium as determined by DSM-5. Results showed that 17% of patients taking placebo developed delirium. No patients taking suvorexant did so. The incidence of developing delirium was statistically significantly different between the groups. No significant differences in adverse events were found. The researchers conclude that suvarexant administered nightly to elderly patients admitted for acute care may provide protection against delirium. They recommend that larger studies are needed to show the potential of suvarexant to improve the circadian core domain of delirium. The full text of this article is freely available online. Please visit the journal website at Psychiatrist.com. Behavioral variant frontotemporal dementia is characterized by fundamental changes in the regulation of social, interpersonal, and personal conduct. Differentiating this condition from Alzheimer's disease can be challenging. Researchers from the Netherlands with support from Dutch institutions compared neuropsychological profiles in patients with behavioral variant frontotemporal dementia versus those with its most common psychiatric differential diagnoses, major depressive disorder, bipolar disorder, and schizophrenia. They found that all patient groups had significantly lower scores on cognitive tests compared to healthy controls. Those with behavioral variant frontotemporal dementia showed less severe deficits on executive functions and verbal memory tests compared to all three primary psychiatric disorder groups. However, patients with this type of dementia had greater difficulty with tests of verbal fluency. Attention in working memory was most impaired in patients with major depressive disorder. The authors conclude that in the differential diagnosis of behavioral variant frontotemporal dementia, cognitive impairment does not rule out the presence of a primary psychiatric diagnosis. Many studies have investigated cerebral spinal fluid monoamine metabolite levels in depressive disorders. However, their clinical significance is still unclear. The authors of this study, with funding from Japanese institutions, sought to determine whether these levels could be a state-dependent marker for major depressive disorder based on analyses stratified by clinical variables in a relatively large sample. 75 patients with major depressive disorder according to dsm four criteria and 87 healthy controls were matched for age, sex, and Japanese ethnicity. They were recruited between May 2010 and November 2013. The authors measured the levels of homovenilic acid, or HVA, 5-HIAA, and MHPG in cerebral spinal fluid by using high-performance liquid chromatography. They analyzed the relationships of the metabolite levels with age, sex, diagnosis, psychotropic medication use, and depression severity. The authors found a weak positive correlation between age and 5-HIAA levels, while sex was unrelated to any metabolite. All monoamine metabolite levels in moderately to severely ill patients with scores higher than 12 points on the 17-item Hamilton Depression Rating Scale were significantly lower than levels in controls. The authors found decreasing effects of antidepressants on the levels of 5-HIAA and MHPG and an increasing effect of antipsychotics on levels of HVA. There was a strong correlation between HVA and 5-HIAA levels. These two levels, but not MHPG levels, were related to depression severity. The authors conclude that levels of 5-HIAA and HVA in cerebral spinal fluid could be a state-dependent marker of major depressive disorder. However, since 5-HIAA levels greatly decrease with antidepressant treatment, HVA levels might be more useful in the clinical setting. The potential for pharmacogenetic testing to help guide treatment is currently a hot topic at psychiatry conferences, with many psychiatrists asking whether such testing should be ordered. In our latest installment of ASCP Corner, Joseph F. Goldberg considers the question of why it should or should not be ordered and looks at whether the current technology is backed by enough evidence to support its use. This article is freely available online please visit the journal website at Psychiatrist.com. Suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the United States, and despite the allocation of resources to predict and prevent suicide, national suicide rates have changed very little over the last two decades. Research goals include identifying underlying risk factors which may guide development of interventions. Sleep is a modifiable risk factor and a potential treatment target for reducing suicidal thoughts and behaviors. Considerable research has demonstrated that insomnia and disrupted sleep are associated with increased risk of suicide. When used at sub-anesthetic doses, ketamine not only has antidepressant effects, but may also have anti-suicidal effects. However, the mechanism of action for these effects is unknown. The authors of this study, with funding from the National Institute of Mental Health, sought to evaluate differences in nocturnal wakefulness between depressed individuals who did and did not have an anti-suicidal response to ketamine. The study included 34 participants with baseline suicidal ideation diagnosed with either major depressive disorder or bipolar depression. Each participant completed a nighttime EEG the night before and the night after a single ketamine infusion. Suicidal ideation was assessed the morning before and the morning after ketamine infusion. After adjusting for baseline sleep, participants with anti-suicidal response to ketamine showed significantly reduced nocturnal wakefulness the night after ketamine infusion compared to those without an anti-suicidal response. This finding suggests that reduced nocturnal wakefulness following ketamine may point to an underlying mechanism for the effect of ketamine on suicidal ideation. Aripiprazole is a long-acting injectable antipsychotic medication that is approved for the treatment of schizophrenia in adults. A 12-week trial sponsored by alchemies was conducted in patients with schizophrenia to evaluate the efficacy and safety of the medication. A post hoc analysis was then done to determine the effect of long-term treatment over the course of one year. The analysis included two dose groups. At the end of one year, the researchers found significant reductions for both treatment groups in scores on the positive and negative syndrome scale and the clinical global impression severity scale. 74% of patients in the 441 mg dose group and 68% of patients in the 882 mg dose group achieved remission and remained in remission until the end of the study. The authors conclude that their findings demonstrate continued therapeutic efficacy of aripiprazole after successful treatment of an acute episode of schizophrenia. Both the 441mg and 882mg groups had similar retention rates, degree of symptom improvement, and likelihood of remission. This article is freely available online. Please visit the September-October table of contents at psychiatrist.com. Antidepressant medication is effective in treating depression, but not all patients improve with medication alone. Some patients may respond better if psychotherapy were added to the treatment regimen. To date, however, this combined approach has not been adequately researched in the literature. To learn more about the potential for this strategy, researchers from Japan investigated the benefits of adding cognitive behavioral therapy to the treatment regimen of depressed patients who were resistant to antidepressant medication. The trial, which received funding from the Japanese government, included 80 outpatients with pharmacotherapy-resistant major depressive disorder. Patients were randomly treated either with cognitive behavioral therapy combined with antidepressant medication or with medication alone. The patients were treated for 16 weeks and followed up for 12 months. Results showed that supplementary cognitive behavioral therapy significantly alleviated depressive symptoms at 16 weeks and that the treatment effect was maintained for at least 12 months. The authors conclude that patients with pharmacotherapy-resistant depression treated in psychiatric specialty care settings may benefit from supplementing usual antidepressant medication with cognitive behavioral therapy. This article is freely available online. Please visit the September-October table of contents at psychiatrist.com. While exercise is recognized as being beneficial to health, few studies have examined how it may help people who have stimulant use disorders. In the present study, which was sponsored by the National Institute on Drug Abuse, the authors compared the effect of adding 12 weeks of either exercise or health education to treatment as usual for individuals with stimulant use disorders. Researchers assessed the percent of stimulant abstinent days based on both self-reported drug use and urine drug screen data. In the primary analysis, no significant differences between the two groups were found, with 76% abstinent days for the exercise group and 77% for the health education group. However, intervention adherence was significantly different between the two groups, with the exercise group attending 64% of the required sessions and the health education group attending 75%. When a follow-up analysis was conducted to take this difference into account, as well as the level of drug use prior to treatment, Exercise participants had a 5% higher abstinence rate compared to health education participants. Consequently, while the primary analysis indicated no significant difference between exercise and health education, adjustment for intervention adherence showed a modest but significantly higher percent of abstinent days in the exercise group. Based on these results, the authors conclude that exercise may improve outcomes for stimulant users who have better adherence to an exercise training dose. Few data about the development of infants born to women with bipolar disorder have been published. To help address this research gap, Santucci and colleagues studied the impact of prenatal exposure to maternal bipolar disorder and to psychotropic treatment for bipolar disorder on infant development in the first 12 months after birth. Their research received funding support from the National Institute of Mental Health. The authors used a prospective longitudinal design and included 197 mother-infant pairs. In 27 pairs, the infants were exposed to bipolar disorder without psychotropic treatment. In 54 pairs, there was exposure to psychotropics, and in 116 pairs, the infants were exposed to neither bipolar disorder nor psychotropics. Maternal psychopathology and pharmacotherapy exposure assessments were completed at 20, 30, and 36 weeks during pregnancy to establish exposure and at 12, 26, and 52 weeks after the birth to evaluate developmental outcomes. The researchers found that neither prenatal exposure to maternal bipolar disorder nor to psychotropic treatment significantly impacted any of the main scores on the Bailey scales of infant development. However, they observed that psychotropic exposure was associated with lower motor quality scores at 52 weeks compared with non-exposed infants. These findings are consistent with a previous study in which infants with a history of intrauterine antipsychotic exposure had significantly lower scores on a standardized neuromotor examination. However, the majority of infants in the current sample were still within normal limits on this outcome. Patients suffering from psychotic disorders such as schizophrenia have decreased life expectancy compared to the general population. This phenomenon is largely due to an increased incidence of type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular diseases. Antipsychotic medications are known to cause weight gain and to affect glucose and lipid metabolism. But studies have shown that patients with psychotic disorders may have increased cardiovascular risk prior to pharmacologic treatment. Researchers in Denmark, with funding from Danish institutions, recently studied baseline body composition and metabolic markers in 113 youths aged 12 to 17 years who had first-episode psychosis. These participants were included in a randomized control trial, and their baseline body composition was compared to those of 60 matched healthy controls. The authors found that despite comparable age and sex-adjusted body mass index Z-scores, adjusted waist circumference Z-scores were significantly higher in patients than in controls. Also, fasting levels of total cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, and non-high-density lipoproteins were higher in patients. The prevalence of abdominal obesity and hypocholesterolemia was also higher in patients, while low HDL cholesterol was more frequent in controls. Presence of type 2 diabetes or dyslipidemia in a parent or sibling was associated with significantly increased cardiometabolic risk in patients, while previous brief antipsychotic exposure was not. Early age at onset predicted increased body mass index and waist circumference Z-scores, while diagnosis of schizophrenia and higher clinical global impression severity score were both associated with increased blood lipids. Based on these findings, the authors conclude that patients with first-episode psychosis at an early age have cardiovascular risk factors prior to antipsychotic treatment. Patients who present with major depressive disorder, or MDD, and subthreshold hypomania are at increased risk of developing bipolar disorder and must be followed carefully. Yet, they are often misdiagnosed. Using older criteria, clinicians have diagnosed such patients as having MDD alone or bipolar disorder. Newer diagnostic criteria allow for a diagnosis of MDD with mixed features. In a new CME Academic Highlights activity, supported by an educational grant from Synovian, Jane and colleagues came together to discuss the Mixed feature Specifier. Their conversation addressed applying the DSM-5 Mixed Features Specifier to episodes of concurrent symptoms of major depression and hypomania or mania. Screening Strategies Tailoring treatment regimens to patients' specific symptoms and behaviors and identifying patients with a unipolar disorder who may be at increased risk of progression to bipolar disorder. Read this CME activity and join the experts as they review the current diagnostic criteria for depressive episodes with mixed features, the risk of developing bipolar disorder in patients with this diagnosis, and recent treatment guidelines. To read this academic highlights and take the CME post-test, please visit the September-October Table of Contents at Psychiatrist.com. In this study, researchers from Spain sought to determine the influence of obesity on cognitive functioning and bipolar disorder. To do so, they conducted a post-hoc analysis of two previous studies, one a cross-sectional study and the other a longitudinal study. Their work received funding support from the Spanish government. Of the 121 individuals examined in the cross-sectional study, 52 were euthymic bipolar individuals and 69 were healthy, matched controls. Participants were categorized into a normal weight group and an overweight or obese group. An extensive cognitive battery was then performed. For the long-term analysis, 54 subjects were re-evaluated after six years of follow-up. Results showed that the interaction of body mass index and group together with current age and premorbid IQ predicted global cognitive functioning and accounted for 56% of variance in the linear regression model. In the long-term analysis, while cognitive performance was no different between the normal weight and overweight or obese subgroups and the healthy control group, the interaction of being obese and bipolar contributed to worsened cognition after a six-year follow-up period. The authors conclude that obesity was significantly associated with cognitive impairment in euthymic bipolar patients, and that obesity also appeared to affect cognition in the long term. Previous studies have shown that selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs, may increase stroke risk in some patients. However, the nature of this risk is still unclear. Using an eight-year cohort from the Taiwan National Health Insurance Research Database, Chan and colleagues compared the risk of first onset of stroke and SSRI users versus non-users. They also examined age and the time effects on the risk of stroke. The authors found a greater probability of first-onset stroke in SSRI users. Around 32% of stroke events occurred in the first year after starting use of these medications. The risk of stroke appeared higher in the first three years, but then decreased over time. The researchers observed that although SSRIs seem to protect patients from stroke if they used SSRIs for more than three years, the finding could also simply represent a bring-forward phenomenon of susceptible stroke events. Other study findings included a greater likelihood of ischemic rather than hemorrhagic stroke events and a greater risk among younger rather than older SSRI users. The authors conclude that the underlying mechanisms of SSRI-related stroke are not known, but may be related to the induction of cerebral microbleeding or to an overcorrection of hemostasis function in patients with certain health problems. Long-term antipsychotic treatment can put your patients at risk for developing tardive dyskinesia, a side effect characterized by involuntary movements of the face, torso, extremities, and sometimes the respiratory system. According to the evidence, second-generation antipsychotics are less likely to cause tardive dyskinesia than first-generation antipsychotics, but the risk is still greater than expected. Do you know how to monitor your patients for the development of tardive dyskinesia's symptoms? Can you manage this condition if it occurs? In a new CME academic highlight, sponsored by an educational grant from TEBA, Corell and colleagues address these and other questions. They discuss the epidemiology and prevention of tardive dyskinesia, risk factors to look for, such as older age and diabetes, screening tools and criteria that can help you make an accurate diagnosis and evidence for various treatments, including breakthrough novel agents. Read this new CME activity to get an overview of their discussion, complete with evidence-based diagnosis and treatment strategies, as well as case-based practice questions that allow you to apply what you've learned. To read this academic highlights and take the CME post-test, please visit the September-October Table of Contents at Psychiatrist.com. Methadone is associated with a prolonged corrected QT interval, or QTC, that can cause arrhythmias and sudden death. Recently published guidelines recommend that patients being initiated onto methadone obtain an electrocardiogram before treatment and one month later. The guidelines also recommend that a QTC longer than 450 milliseconds is cause for concern. The authors of this study, with funding from the National Institutes of Health's Career Development Award, looked at something never reported. The impact of methadone dose and in anti immerse specific methadone concentrations on QTC in pregnant and postpartum women and newborns. They then evaluated the recent electrocardiogram recommendations for pregnant women. Plasma methadone concentrations were measured during pregnancy, postpartum, and in cord blood in women treated for opioid dependence at a single treatment program. Electrocardiograms were obtained at peak methadone concentrations in mothers and within 48 hours of birth for infants. Pearson correlations were used to determine associations between QTC and methadone dose and concentrations. The 25 women in this study took an average of 94 mg of methadone during pregnancy and 112 mg postpartum. During the third trimester, higher methadone dose and higher R-methadone concentration correlated with longer QTC. However, this was not true postpartum. Infant QTC did not correlate with maternal dose at delivery or with an antimer-specific cord-methadone concentration. Of note, 13% of pregnant women and 17% of women postpartum had QTC longer than 450 milliseconds, as did 19% of infants. The authors conclude that QTC did correlate with dose and R-methadone concentration during the third trimester. Furthermore, longer QTC was common among women during and after pregnancy. Given this finding, the authors support recommendations that it is advisable for pregnant and postpartum women to obtain an electrocardiogram before and after methadone initiation. Until now, a large and consistent literature has affirmed that immune-regulating cytokines are elevated in mood disorders. Clinical studies in bipolar disorder are lacking, however, and the clinical relevance of these findings remains unclear. In this study, supported by the 7th European Union's Program for Research and Innovation, the authors studied a panel of 15 immune-regulating cytokines in a group of 37 patients affected by bipolar depression, 84% of whom were drug-resistant. Patients were treated with combined lithium and antidepressant chronotherapeutics. This therapy consists of cycles of sleep deprivation and light therapy. The treatment prompted response in 62% of patients. The authors found that a set of five cytokines was predictive of failure to respond and that these cytokines are strongly associated with macrophage monocyte pro-inflammatory activation patterns. The cytokines were also found to act on brain cells and have been associated with reduction of neurotransmitter function, trophic support, and white matter integrity. Results also show that a higher body mass index associates with higher cytokine levels, indirectly hampering the response to chronotherapeutics. The authors conclude that stratification of patients with bipolar depression on the basis of immune signatures could help to select a specific treatment-resistant subgroup, a group that could benefit from the therapeutic targeting of the activated inflammatory response system. People with psychotic disorders have an increased metabolic risk and a shortened mean life expectancy compared to the general population. Monitoring of metabolic risk factors in these patients has therefore been implemented for several years. However, even when adequate monitoring is present, low rates of treatment for metabolic risk factors are seen among patients, including among those most compliant with follow up screenings. In this study, which is part of a larger ongoing Dutch cohort study, the Pharmacotherapy Monitoring and Outcomes Survey, or Famous study. Nearly 1,300 patients with psychotic disorders were assessed annually for three years on their use of treatment for risk factors associated with metabolic syndrome. Metabolic syndrome was prevalent in more than half of the people with psychotic disorders participating in the study. This number compares to a prevalence of about 22% among individuals of the same age in the general Dutch population. Although treatment with antihypertensive, antihyperglycemic, or lipid-lowering drugs was recommended for nearly two-thirds of the patients, less than half of them were treated for their metabolic risk factors. These findings strongly support a growing international movement towards intervening rather than merely screening for metabolic disorders in patients with psychotic disorders. Ideally, general practitioners, psychiatrists, and patients will together acknowledge the increased risk of metabolic disorders and set up an adequate pharmacologic treatment plan based on the monitoring results. Women with a history of depression are particularly vulnerable to experiencing depression in the postpartum period. To learn more about this, the authors of this study examined risk factors for postpartum depression in pregnant women with prior histories of major depressive disorder who were euthymic at the time they conceived. The study received funding support from the National Institute of Mental Health. Pregnant women with a history of major depressive disorder were prospectively assessed from the third trimester into the postpartum period using the structured clinical interview for DSM-IV Axis One Disorders Mood Module and the 17-item Hamilton Depression Rating Scale, or HDRS. Data from subjects who completed at least two mood module assessments, one within 60 days before and the other within 60 days after delivery, were analyzed for predictive associations between variables assessed in the third trimester and the development of a postpartum depression. Of the 300 women who were followed from the third trimester up to 24 weeks postpartum, 255 remained euthymic in the third trimester, while 45 became depressed during pregnancy. The rate of postpartum depression for the entire sample was 13%. Depression during pregnancy was associated with a higher risk of being depressed in the postpartum, as 24% of women with depression during pregnancy developed postpartum depression, compared to 11% of women who remained euthymic in the third trimester. For women who remained euthymic during pregnancy, the three specific HDRS items that pertain to work activities, early insomnia, and suicidality were associated with an increased risk of postpartum depression. The authors further conclude that for women who were euthymic in the third trimester, antidepressant use during this period was not protective against the risk of postpartum depression. In the most recent installments of his Clinical and Practical Psychopharmacology column, Dr. Andrade provides a meta-review of six meta-analyses that examine the risk of autism associated with the use of antidepressants during pregnancy. In Part 1 of this series, Dr. Andrade further considers the extent to which maternal mental illness is a major factor of that risk. In Part 2, he discusses whether these recently published studies will have an effect on the conclusions of previous meta-analyses on the topic. The full text of these columns is freely available online. Please visit the September-October table of contents at psychiatrist.com. In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the September-October issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. You can view the table of contents on the JCP website at psychiatrist.com. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the publisher's podcast, Your Place for Psychiatry's Soundbites.